0: my wife Emily and I started dating. I, I'm piecing together the story for you, right? And both three of you care. Uh, but uh, before that, I actually wrote her a love song and recorded it to her, uh, recorded it for her. And on one instance, I actually, I thought about playing it for her and then I, I chickened out. And then later on, I asked her out a couple times. Some of you know this part of the story. She denied me a couple of times. Eventually, she came around or settled in life, whatever, however you want to phrase it. And we started going out. And then at that point, I played her this song. And then, and and she said, "Oh, that's nice." Right? And but uh, I told her I was thinking about telling her, uh, playing it for her many months earlier. And she was like, oh, that would have been a terrible idea." Like that. (laughs) That, I'm so glad you didn't. That would have freaked me out. We probably wouldn't be here today. You know, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, and it was like a very cheesy, really cheesy love song. Um, the Bible has love songs in it. Did you know that? In fact, the longest chapter in the longest book in the Bible is a love poem. And it's a, an intricately written love poem. Actually, it's an acrostic There are eight verses in each stanza, and there are 22 stanzas. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so for each stanza of eight verses, uh, they all begin, all eight verses begin with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's kind of like going from A to Z, where the first eight verses are A, and the... Next eight verses are B, except it's the Hebrew alphabet, the 22 letters in it. So the verses 1 through 8 all begin with Aleph, and 9 through 6 with Bet, and verses 17 through 24 with Gimel, and on and on, for 22 stanzas and 176 verses. All of them, every verse, delighting in their love for the Bible. It's Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the longest book of the Bible, and it is a love poem about the word God of God, intricately written. In 169 of the 176 verses, the psalmist makes some reference to the word of God, referring to it as the law or testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, rules, promises, and the word, all with slightly different emphasis, what God wants, or what God appoints, or what God demands, or what God has spoken, but all with the same big idea, God's revelation to us in words. Put into the form of the Bible, God's written word for us. Now, this is significant, right? The lengthiest of chapters, finely crafted a love poem in the Bible about the Bible. The, The psalmist loved this book, loved it, found it beautiful, found it amazing. The poetic language in it is oftentimes even romantic. He's passionate about the Bible. Do you ever realize just what a wonderful thing we have in this? Isn't it astounding? I mean, I don't know if many of us would go home and write it a love poem. But that's what the psalmist did because the psalmist recognized what an incredible gift God has given us in his word. This fall, if you don't know, if you're unaware, we're kind of working through our, our six values here at Central. There's six stated values that we have at the church, and we just believe they're fan- foundational in the Christian life and for the Christian church. And we're working through our second value this morning, which we phrase as rooted in the Bible. We want to be a church that is rooted in the Bible, and my my goal this morning is to give you some of the rationale for why that is of absolute importance. We can refer to it as the priority of the Word, giving God's Word, the Bible, priority in our church. Um, every couple of months or so, we do a baptism and ministry partnership class, and in the next number of them, I've I've walked through. Walk people through whether they're getting baptized or becoming ministry partners with kind of members in our church, kind of mutually uh, serving each other in the church. When we go through that process, the very first place I start in the class with, in, in terms of doctrine, is with the scriptures, the Bible. It's the very first one we look at. We look at very few doctrines in that class, but we talk about God in three persons. We talk about the gospel. We talk about the scripture. We talk about the church, but we start with the scriptures, and why would we do that? Why would we start there? I mean, typically, if you do systematic theology or something like that, the place that is often that you often start is with God. The description of who God is. Give us the picture of God. God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That seems like the natural place to start. Everything flows from there. But no, we start with the scriptures and here's why. Because it's the absolute foundation from which everything else is built upon. Everything else is built upon um, this because we only get our understanding of the Trinity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, of the gospel and all of these things if we believe the words that God has said. And so... We want to be a people rooted in the Bible. Mark Dever put it this way, if you get the priority of the word established, then you have in place the single most important aspect of the church's life. And growing health is virtually assured because God has decided to act by his spirit through his word. If you get the priority of the word established, then you have in place the single most important aspect of the church's life. If we will believe the Bible, if we will prioritize the Bible, everything else will flow from there. So if you have a Bible, you can turn it to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible but would like to follow along in a Bible, they're up on the tops of the balcony and um, just outside the doors, there's a few stacks of them. Or if you have an app or whatever, that works too. And uh, ultimately, it's also on the screen. You can follow along there. Um, wherever you are in exploring who Jesus is or your knowledge of the Bible, if you have no knowledge of the Bible, very little or a lot, just really glad that we can walk through this together. We're going to talk about why we want to be rooted in the Bible. So here it is, is: Second Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. your ministry. So this morning I want to give you the charge, the scope, the temptation, and the point. Let's start with the charge. The charge is this, preach the word. Um, The context is this, the Apostle Paul is going to go on just like in the immediate following verses and say, "Uh, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith, there's a crown awaiting me in the heavens, right? He's at the tail end of his ministry. In fact, this is the very last letter that uh, Paul will write before he is executed. He's imprisoned at this time. He will die shortly. He knows his time is running short, and he writes this letter to Timothy urging him, essentially, to do just that, preach the word. So Paul's time is short, and He also adds, we can see from the context that the stakes are incredibly high. I mean, look at verse one of chapter four. Look at the language, I charge you. (laughs) That's strong language. He adds to it, in the presence of God. I'm, I'm telling you to do something. I need you to do it. I'm saying it before God. He adds again, and of Christ Jesus. So God the Father and God the Son care deeply about this thing that Paul is saying. Then he goes on, who is to judge the living and the dead, so the stakes are now even raised higher to life and death, and actually beyond life and death to final judgment, because he goes on to say, and by his appearing and his kingdom. The charge being given here has a lot to do with what happens when Jesus comes again and inaugurates his kingdom. His kingdom becomes consummated, and he judges the living and the dead. Those are the stakes, in, in that context, he's saying this is important. Okay, and what is it that is important? Preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word. Now, just a few verses earlier, it says all Scripture is breathed out by God. Um, and, and what that means is that all of the words of the Bible are God's words. They're inspired. They're what, there's what, he, they are what he wants to say to his people. And so when the charge is given, preach the word, it's a charge to preach the Bible, like all of it, everything, all the verses of the Bible, because it's all God breathed. It's all his words. And so we are to preach what we call the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible. Give ourselves to preaching the Bible. And now I believe that the best approach for applying verse 2, there are other methods, other approaches, and, and that's fine, but but something that we give ourselves to is what's called expositional preaching. Because we we really are convinced that it's the the, the most it helps us be as faithful as we can to do what Paul is charging Timothy to do preach the word, the whole counsel of God. And so expositional preaching is just that, driven by the word. It's preaching in such a way that the main point of the passage preached is the main point of the sermon. That's the goal. So every Sunday when you come to Central, almost exclusively, you'll find on the back of the little bulletins we give you uh, a title to the sermon, whoever that preacher is, and then the verses that will be preached that morning. And so the goal of the preacher ought to be what these verses say, I will proclaim. That's the preacher's goal. These verses mean something, they say something, and my job is to preach what they say. So, preaching, that kind of preaching submits to the word rather than the word submitting to the preacher. Well, I've got something to say, and I'm going to grab some verses, and I'm going to tell you what I have to say Well, I grab some verses. That's a very different approach. It also actually causes me to preach things I'd never choose to preach. Anybody who preaches through books of the Bible or a few verses at a time kind of works their way through like we've been doing with the Gospel of John for like 18 years straight or whatever it is now. I've lost track, right? We're getting back to it in January. We're going to close out the Gospel of John. We've just, Every verse in the Bible we will have preached through over the course of seven decades. And so It causes us, though, in that process of preaching things we wouldn't necessarily preach. In fact, the very first sermon I ever preached on a Sunday morning in a church was a text that was given to me from 1 Corinthians 7. Can I read it for you? It says this, my very first sermon, I was in my early 20s, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? (laughs) Let him not seek to remove the, the marks of circumcision. Anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised, let him not seek circumcision. I was given this by the pastor, and looking back, I'm like, you knew. You timed that so right just to make me squirm. Oh, I can guarantee you this morning, I never in a million years for my first sermon, like I got the whole Bible to choose from, I never would have chosen Those verses in 1 Corinthians 7, I assure you. And yet my task was to preach with faithfulness that morning and I found myself so so surprised it was such a good lesson for a new preacher. You know what that was? As I gave myself to what appeared like such strange verses, I discovered the great message within the text, which is this. God calls people to himself from all kinds of situations, from all kinds of places, from all kinds of people. God does that. God calls out people from there and has called you and me in the midst of those circumstances for a purpose. Amen. Never would have picked it. This is the charge of Paul to Timothy, preach the word, God's word, the Bible, not you. Don't preach you, preach the word. Look, the kind of church to look for, and I'm saying this not, nothing to do with Central. If you're visiting here, we're really, really glad you're here. If you're from out of town and you're going somewhere else, great. If you're just whatever, if you from Central move and go someplace at some point, and and need to find a church. Let me just say to anybody, wherever this fits, the kind of church to look for is a church that preaches sermons where the point of the text is the point of the sermon. That the word of God is being proclaimed. Expect your preacher to preach the Bible. Expect that of him. The call to preach the word is a call to preach the whole counsel of God and to preach sermons that preach the text. I mean... At the end of the day, that's all we've got to proclaim. Martin Luther, we're just mere days away now from the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The Reformation, the starting point of the Reformation is marked by Martin Luther um, um, nailing the 95 Theses to the uh, church doors of Wittenberg and, uh, and really starting from there on a reformation in the church. So kind of the great emphasis of Martin Luther in the Reformation and how it really changed the world was the idea that that the church had kind of steered away from justification by grace through faith. And all Martin Luther did, or all he would say that he ultimately did, was proclaim what the Bible said. That was his great contribution. In his own words, looking back at what God had done through his ministry and through the early years of the Reformation, he said, I simply taught, preached, wrote. God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. I did nothing. The word did it all. I did nothing. I left it to the word, but it brings him, now speaking about Satan, it brings the devil distress when we only spread the word and let it alone do the work. It's all we've got. It's all we're called to. Look, if, if there can be a funny story every once in a while, praise God, that's a bonus right? If if the person is really, really eloquent, awesome. That makes it a little easier to track. Great. But what you need in a preacher is somebody who will open the Word of God, share some verses, and tell you what it says, and hopefully help you make application to your life. That's it. That's the call. Preach the Word. Proclaim God's words. So that's the call to the preacher. There's also a call within this to the hearers, right? I get this sense sometimes, like everyone but my wife thinks the pastor is perfect. Every once in a while, right? She knows, she knows, but every once in a while there's a little bit of like, oh, you know, obviously not true, and you all know that about me. We're fallible, I'm fallible, we're fallible, the Bible is not. So see the tension? I'm here trying to preach a few verses, I'm fallible, the Bible is not. Okay, so now that puts us in a different, dif- an interesting environment here. We may preach the Bible, but you, the congregation, the hearers, need to be discerning of my interpretation of that text or any preacher's interpretation of that text. We're going to try and preach the Bible, but we're going to be saying a lot of stuff about a few verses, and the role of the hearer is to say, is that true? Is that true according to the word? Is it faithful to the text, Bibles open, Bible apps open, right? That's your job. Fascinating situation. The Apostle Paul went many places. One of those was a little place called Berea, and we see it referenced in Acts chapter 17. It says in verse 11, they received the word with all eagerness, the people of Berea, the Bereans. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Interesting. The Apostle Paul shows up on the scenes in their little town, Berea. The Bereans are familiar with the Old Testament. Paul is preaching. They're hearing him. But then now they're going back to the Scriptures and saying, is what he is telling us true? And it says that they examine the Scriptures daily to see if it were so And so um, one, one writer put it this way about the Bereans. Scripture was the Bereans' accurate and effective filter for receiving truth and rejecting error. The fact that they read Scripture daily also points to a high degree of biblical literacy. They lived in the Word. They didn't merely dip their toes in the reading of favorite stories and the memorization of life verses. There's a zinger they were fully immersed in God's word and studied it as a collective whole being able to identify the story of Christ woven throughout the old testament they're hearing the apostle paul say the messiah the long awaited one is jesus he's come he died he rose this is the story about jesus he's the long awaited one and they look back in the scriptures and say hey that adds up that sounds like what the prophets were saying about the one to come hey the descriptors of the messiah in the old testament that's That sounds an awful lot like this. Jesus, you're proclaiming, this is the truth. Because they look back at the Word, they were able to interpret, they were able to see, they were able to examine and discover the truth as according to God's Word. Can I encourage you, Central? Be Berean-like. Test what you hear. Bible's open. Heart's open. Heart's discerning. Is this what God's word is saying? And when you discovered it, it to be true, be eager and respond. Secondly, the scope. The scope is this, the Bible's usefulness in our lives. It says, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. You can probably tell from looking at me um, that I know a lot about hip hop uh, or rap music kind of a resident uh, expert, uh, you know, so Chilliwack has trained me in, you know, knowing all things hip-hop. So there you go. No, but interestingly, at first glance, at first listen to the genre which is hip-hop, many people, many of us kind of find, that, find it offensive, right? It's oftentimes very vulgar. Um, it's very kind of brash and overtly right, in your face. And so we might make some sum, uh, kind of summaries about like, what we think about hip hop as a genre, but, but that's just by kind of glancing in without any kind of critique of it. So it's always helpful to know, well, what is it trying to do? I mean, what is this, what are hip hop artists trying to accomplish in the first place? And maybe by that um, aim and goal, we're able to discern if like, they're even achieving that or w- what its purpose is or whatever, because I know many of you are like, why does this, fi- why does this exist? Uh, and uh, I'm not making a case for hip-hop. Just save your emails. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to say this artist is great or this artist is great. I'm talking about a generic genre, but what's really interesting is, and you can still write Gary at central365.org. We've (laughs) kept that account going. It allows me to double back and still talk about Pastor Gary, so there you go. Um, But it's interesting because as you study it, you recognize that hip-hop is quite a unique art form, right? It is an art form, and it actually, its goal oftentimes is to express the experience of growing up in the projects, like in the hood, right? In Compton and all of these places where it really was dangerous and hard, where where they're, they're addressing through lyrics, through poetry, what they witnessed raw and hard and bad as it was. So it, it's like therapy. It's like, I'm just painting a picture of realities, right? Of, of racism and murder and drug addiction and all of these things. And yes, often it is glorified, but in many instances, it's just describing the realities. And then you start to go, wow, okay, well, this is helpful, at least in me understanding these artists came from very hard places. And it's an expression of these hard things they're trying to figure out what to do with. At least it puts it in its categories in a really, really strange, illustrative way, the Bible's the same. W- like, what's it trying to do? What's its aim? Like, let's get at what it's even trying to accomplish in the first place, where it's coming from, and what its purpose is. Because if we don't know that, if, we, if we're not kind of tackling those things, then we're, we're just gonna approach it in all the different ways that we approach it. Maybe turn to it for a bit of inspiration. Oh, that verse sounds really, really nice. I'll put it on a mug and drink from it, and I think I'll be blessed. I don't know. Or... Or just open it, read it, interpret it as you will. Whatever it means to you, that's super. And hopefully it's helpful. Or open it and it has a lot of commands and that's because the Bible's primarily a rule book and you just need to follow these rules. See, we need to know what the Bible's for and what its aim is. And what we see here is that we have been given the Bible so we can see who God is. The Bible is for that. The Bible starts, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God did something. All, primarily, the book starts by being a book about who God is, how all things began, the context by which we can understand and know Creator God. So, that's one of the, the reasons that the Bible was formed, so that we could know who God is. And then it goes on to describe who we are, that we would understand that rightly. Then it tells us about what Jesus has done, God the Son, and what he accomplished, and then, therefore, how we live in response, how to be shaped as the people of God. The Bible is God's tool to change us. Now look, chapters and verses in your Bibles, they came along like just in hundreds of years ago, um, not thousands of years ago, they were late editions, so we can turn to 2 Timothy 4 and be in the right spot. But I want to back it up a little bit because there's one trail of thought working its way through here, and I don't want us to disconnect the two. So I'm going to back up to 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 16, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work, verse 1 I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching there are great benefits in the bible one of them is teaching the bible is useful for teaching meaning that the bible leads us in the path of gospel truth it teaches us, instructs us. It's not only to be read, but it's also to be preached, taught, explained, applied, and received by faith. It's also helpful for reproof. The Bible is useful for teaching us not only what is true, but also what is wrong, what is false, meaning that the Bible knocks us from the path of error. And the way that it does that is that it tells us where we're wrong, and then it can convict us of sin the Bible calls me out. The Bible calls you out. It reproofs us. Is that right, terminology? It is our reproof, and we need that. We all need this. God's Word has the ability to uncover our doubt, our jealousy, our hatred, our lust, and our pride, and the Christian life is a calling to daily repentance, and we can only repent when the Bible has shown us the error of our ways But it doesn't stop there. It's also useful and beneficial for correction, praise God. The Bible is useful for reorienting our lives toward right thinking and living, meaning that the Bible returns us to the path of gospel truth. It doesn't doesn't just show us where we're wrong, it shows us how to make it right. Correction is necessary for all of us because all of us sin in our daily lives and err in our understanding of God. And then finally, training in righteousness. The Bible is useful for teaching us how to live God-glorifying lives, meaning that the Bible directs us in the application of gospel truth. It trains us in righteousness. God's honored when we know him, right? Think theology and live for him. Think godliness. The Bible is useful in teaching us to think rightly and live righteously. Central, may we never get tired of the word of God. It has foundational, primary benefits to what it means to be Christian, to follow Christ. And we take our cues from it. May May we never move past it. May we accept all of its benefits. And we need to hear that because there is a temptation that hangs over us here these words preach the word in season and out of season mean when it's convenient and when it's not right i think of as a preacher there are texts that are wonderfully great to preach and then there are texts that come along and i want to i want to check job boards for other <laughs> employment They're like i don't want to talk about that but that's what god's word in season and out of season we're called to preach the word whether it's popular or not popular. And look, the temptation is this, to wander from the truth. For there is a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths or fantasies, fables, untruths. So while Timothy is instructed to preach with complete patience, we see here that there are those actually in the church who will not endure. So the call is towards patience because there's a temptation n- to not endure sound teaching. Th- those who will not endure have itching ears, which is th- a desire to hear what one wants to hear. I mean, you and all I all to a degree have that, right? We hear things in God's Word. We do not want to hear. We'd rather it say something else, and it doesn't. It says what it says. And we have to recognize the temptation to wander from the truth because it's not saying what we would like for it to say. See, this is the danger. When something in the Bible is not palatable, it's tempting to accumulate, literally to stockpile, teachers who say otherwise. Well, I don't like what the Bible says here. And then we discover that there's a whole host of teachers who say something contrary to the difficult thing over here. And so we go, oh, I'm gonna follow that. And they're one of the top sermon podcasts, so I mean it must be good, right? It's all that kind of stuff. See, the most dangerous lie, I'm convinced, is the one that's almost true. It sounds kind of Christian. But it's a way easier message. It's kind of I think it's Christian, so I'm gonna follow that, right? See the danger? It's the subtleties. So let's 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 do this in honor of um. 500 years um, since the beginning of the Reformation. Let's play the game, Heresies of the Early Church. Are you ready? And listen for the dangerous lie that is almost true. All right, here we go. Arianism for 500. Arianism sprouted up in the third century in the church. Arius denied the divinity of Jesus Christ, claiming that he was the created son of God, which also, of course, at the same time denied the three persons of the Trinity. I mean, um, Arius had many right beliefs, we would say, but in this one area, when it came to Jesus Christ, he believed that Jesus was a created being. He was the created Son of God. And yet so much of what he would say would sound true to us. Uh, A church father, Athanasius, came along and responded by writing what's called On the Incarnation, a document he wrote affirming the full deity and humanity of Jesus, and the early church was able to um, clearly maneuver away from Arianism. Macedonianism for 750. Is that how the numbers go? I don't know. I don't care. Second century Macedonianism sprouted up and divide, uh, div- denied the divinity of the Holy Spirit, claiming that he did not proceed from the Father but was created by the Son. So now it's just a subtle difference in the fact that you know, the, the created one is the Holy Spirit. So Jesus sends the Spirit, It's like it's a, it, and it's a creating of the Holy Spirit action. It's a heresy. Modalism. Uh, came on the scene in the second and third centuries, uh, uh, it it held that there is only one person in God who manifests himself in various ways, various modes. One God, um, and then manifesting himself as the Father over here, and then as the Son over here, and as the Holy Spirit over here. One God uh, in these different modes at different times. And of course, uh, it's it's a a subtle difference from Christian orthodoxy, which is that God exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nestorianism, in the 5th century, Nestorius claimed that there were two distinct persons in the incarnate Christ, one human and one divine, right? Right? So close. Rather than the fully divine Son of God taking on human nature as fully God and fully man. Pelagianism, actually semi-Pelagianism lives on to this day. But Pelagius in the 5th century denied that the original sin tainted human nature and that human will is capable of choosing good or evil without divine help. So by undercutting the, the fact that, that original sin was what we inherited from our original parents in the garden, Adam and Eve, that if that's not placed upon us, well then we still have in, a, in ourselves the ability to choose, right, choose deity, choose God apart from anything that he does. Actually, Augustine was the one who responded to Pelagius, and the church affirms Augustine's teaching to this day. Look, nothing's changed. At every turn, there is temptation to not believe God and to discover a new interpretation, a new reading of Paul, right, that makes so much of the hard-hitting things he said much more palatable to us. It's always tempting This is why the qualification of elder exists that's different from deacon. You know what the one difference is? Is that the elder needs to be apt to teach. And what Paul is getting at there is the vitalness of the fact that elders need to be able to identify false doctrine and guide back to the truth by showing it, teaching it in Scripture. Not every elder needs to be a preacher on a stage per se, but every elder needs to handle the Word of God in such a way to say, wait a minute, we're veering from the truth here and we need to reform. John MacArthur, quite a famous Bible teacher, said many churches today are filled to overflowing with those who want their ears tickled with the myths of easy believism and the many variations of selfism and so-called positive thinking. They come to have their egos fed and their sins approved, not to have their hearts cleansed and their souls saved. They want only to feel good, not to be made good, Tragically, such myths serve to religiously insulate people from the true gospel and drive them still further from the Lord. See, when our temptation to believe something other than the scriptures comes along and there are preachers waiting to affirm it, I mean, it is so, so easy to give in right there and to turn from the truth. We have preachers who teach that you can't believe the miracles of the Bible. Science has just proven it. Well, that's what makes it a miracle. is science can't prove the miracle. <laughs> Anyways, others who deny the reliability of the Bible. we can't really truly trust it. I mean the Jonah story never happened. The no- the Noah story never happened. And so by undercutting some of these, right? stories, well, that part's really difficult. You can't trust it. And over and over it goes. Preachers who replace the cost of discipleship with the prosperity gospel, quite the opposite. Christianity won't cost you. It'll make you rich and it'll give you a life of ease. And There are preachers waiting to tell you that. Whatever the issue is that you don't like in the Bible, you can find a preacher who will agree with you and you can stockpile them if you want. They will help you suit your own passions. Let me just give you one example, just one example, because what we're looking at is these perspectives in the Bible, these difficult words in the scriptures, these things we wrestle with and find challenging. um, We're tempted to toss them out. It's It's not very uncommon, actually. I've been a part of some of these conversations. It's kind of 21st century North American coffee shop talk and get to the point, a bunch of young adults Right, get talking, and eventually one of them exclaims as they're talking about faith, I can't believe in a God of wrath and judgment. I can't. It can't be a a loving God if he's a a God of wrath and a God of judgment. I won't follow a God like that. That makes no sense to me, right? But that's contrary to the Bible, that God is the righteous judge who will come and judge. But let's let's take us now across the world to Africa or to the Middle East, let's say, and these are real issues that are happening, right? Where rebel forces will come into a village and kill all the men and rape all the women and children. Or in parts of the Middle East where, some, where, where uh, groups with uh, different ideologies will come into town and literally put people who believe something different into a cage and burn them to death. But you know what the people are saying there? They're saying, I can't believe in a God who will not pour out his wrath and judgment. Do you see the difference? Some of us are in a coffee shop thinking, how could a loving God have wrath and judgment? Others are experiencing horrors in this world and say, I can't follow a God who's not gonna come through and deal with sin. Our perspective doesn't trump all else, my friends. The Bible does. And we could go issue after issue after issue. God's word stands. See, we need to recognize our culturally preconditioned worldviews and be more critical of them than we are of the Bible. But the opposite is often true. We're so critical of the Bible and don't question for a second our culturally preconditioned worldviews. We don't give them a second thought. We just wholesale believe them. We're in our context and we don't question anything about the the narratives that are coming our way. But when it comes to the Bible, I'm not believing that. That's crazy. God gave us a book. He wrote down his story that he wants us to hear and he handed it to us. It's the great tradition that we are a part of. But central, the temptation, this temptation, look, it's not just out there. That temptation is not even just in here. The temptation is in here for every single one of us. Do you hear the language? Finding teachers that suit your own passions, our own passions passions. This isn't ultimately an intellectual issue, it's a values issue. This is how this kind of taps into our series this fall on our values. Um, This is the second value that we're rooted in the Bible. This is a value of ours because we often can give intellectual assent to something and agree, but then we, we actually go and do something different than what we actually believe and the reason that we do that is because there are these underlying passions and values that at the end of the day we chase down because underneath it all we love those things more. See, so they'll find teachers who suit their own passions. Ah, that aligns with what I, what I value, what deep down I'm, I'm, I'm itching for. It's not ultimately an intellectual issue, it's a values issue. So I need you to hear this, the great temptation you face and I face to reject the truth is not only at an intellectual level, it's at the heart level, and we need to fight that. We need to pray that God would help us desire the truth, love the truth, be like the psalmist in Psalm 119, just like write love poetry to God's word. I love this, I desire this, I value this. Underneath it all, I long for God and his word. Let's close by talking about the point. And the point is this. The Bible tells one unified story that leads to Jesus. Verse five says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul's kind of given this this charge in verses one to four, and now he's summarizing and saying, stay sober-minded, meaning keep your head in all situations. Let's get really practical. Keep your head Timothy, because all of these other beliefs, all of these temptations, all of these other things are going to come your way. And while others wander off to chase trendy religious innovations, you are called to faithfulness, to be composed, to be alert, to be watchful, be sober-minded, Timothy. And in doing that, believe me, Timothy, you will endure suffering. Hardship will come. Difficulty will come. It is promised. And then he tells him, do the work of an evangelist. I love the way that he phrases that. It makes it sound like Timothy wasn't an all-star evangelist. Like put your hard hat on and do the work of an evangelist. I find that personally encouraging. It's not just the, the, those who have this great gift of talking about faith with people, striking up a conversation, like they're in the Starbucks line, and by the time you go to get your drink, the barista's saved. And you're like, What? There were like three people in the line. Like, what happens, right? they just like, well, it's a gift, right? Like, it's like, I don't have that. And yet not all of us have that. And yet, all of us are called to do the work of an evangelist. And the work of an evangelist is the work of sharing the gospel. Sharing the hope that is in us. And in doing these things, staying sober-minded, enduring, enduring suffering, doing the work of an evangelist, proclaiming the word, giving ourselves to it, we are called, well, we will fulfill our ministry. And every one of us is called to ministry. Every one of us, you know that, right? We're all ministers, Ephesians 4 tells us. And so this is a charge to each one of us. Fulfill your ministry. God's given you gifts. God's given you his word. And God will give you a voice. He will give you the ability to fulfill your ministry. May we all give ourselves to that. And in doing that, ultimately, we're giving ourselves to Jesus. And this Jesus was the one who fulfilled his ministry. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, Jesus says, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. How did Jesus fulfill his ministry? Well, he left heaven to pursue you. He died to redeem you, and he rose to free you, to heal you, and he invites you to himself. Jesus' work is accomplished. It's finished. He's fulfilled his ministry that God gave him on earth to do, and the invitation stands for you to come and receive him. The invitation stands to give yourselves to the work of ministry in order to fulfill your ministry, and Jesus will give you the power to do it. So what is the Bible? It's ultimately God's grand story of redemption, pointing us to the true word of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true word. In John 1.14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the grand subject of the entire Bible and the one we proclaim in our preaching. Jesus is the word made flesh who dwelt among us. When Jesus showed up on the scene, he was the word in the flesh. Jesus is the true word. Charles Spurgeon uh, wrote a story about a young man. He says this, a young man had been preaching in the presence of a venerable divine, and after uh, he had done, he went to the old minister and said, what do you think of my sermon? A very poor sermon indeed, he said. A poor sermon, said the young man? It took me a long time to study it. Hey, no doubt. Well, why did you think my explanation of the text? Did you not think my explanation of the text a very good one? Oh, yes, said the old preacher. Very good indeed. Well, then why do you say it is a poor sermon? Didn't you think the metaphors were appropriate and the arguments conclusive? Yes, they were very good as far as that goes. But still, it was a very poor sermon. Will you tell me why you think it a poor sermon? Because, said he. There was no Christ in it. Well, said the young man, Christ was not in the text. We are not to be preaching Christ always. We must preach what is in the text. So the old man said, Don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London? Yes, said the young man. Hey, said the old divine. And so from every text in Scripture... There is a road to the metropolis of the scriptures that is Christ. And my dear brother, your business in when you get to a text is to say, now what is the road to Christ? And then preach a sermon running along the road towards the great metropolis Christ. And said he, I have never yet found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. And if I ever do find one that has not a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will go over a hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master. For the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a Savior of Christ in it. It is the Bible that makes the centrality of the gospel clear. That's what the Bible does. The Bible makes the gospel clear, the story of Jesus. God has given us a book, and it is actually an even greater love poem than the one we find in Psalm 119. It's the love poem from Jesus to each one of us, because he loves you. He came for you. God wrote a book. This is it, and it invites us to know Jesus. There's a great little children's Bible and the tagline in it is every story whispers his name. The great point is Jesus that we would know him. And so central, we want to be a people that are rooted in the Bible. Never let it go because it's how we can know about the gospel, meet Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being the word made flesh and dwelling among us. Thank you that you came to save. Thank you that you fulfilled your ministry. You did everything asked of you by the Father so that you could extend out to us salvation. So God, we thank you for that. We pray, God, would you make us more and more people rooted in the Bible that take our cues from it and interpret everything according to it. God, we need you in that. We pray your Spirit's presence in that. And we pray... God, that Jesus would be magnified as we give ourselves to the word, that it would absolutely change our hearts, our lives, and make us into faithful followers of you. In Jesus' name, amen.